Philippians chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 13, uh, in a message entitled, May God Be Glorified. And so as you turn there, I want to give you a little bit of background information on what we're looking at in Philippians. Paul uh, is our author, uh, apostle called to uh, bring the gospel message to uh, non-Jews, specifically Gentiles, although his uh, ministry would end up affecting all kinds of individuals. At the point of uh, Philippians that Paul is writing, he is in prison, um, which often occurred with Paul uh, because he would share his faith, he would disrupt leadership, and he would get in trouble for it. Uh, even though he was doing right and good, uh, he would still wind up in some kinds of trouble, sometimes run out of town, sometimes in prison. And in this case, he is writing from prison. Uh, he's writing to the church at Philippi, which is in a region uh, that's sort of like east or southeast of Italy, uh, is where it's located, or was located. Uh, some believe that Luke, the author of the Gospel of Luke, would become the pastor of this church after its founding. Uh, and Paul founded this church some ten years or so before this letter is written. And so he hasn't heard from the church in a while. Uh, he is anxious to communicate with uh, the church, and they just so happen to send an emissary uh, to bring him some financial support at the time of this letter writing, which is his reason for writing the letter uh, while he is in prison. So contact's made, and Paul writes this letter to the church at Philippi. And in this letter, you'll see if you spend a little time with it, it's a short letter, so you can read through it in no time. Uh, Paul consistently emphasizes his joy, uh, which is a really unique uh, character trait uh, because he's in prison. And so Paul is not affected by his surroundings in that way, and he wants the church to know that uh, even in jail, uh, God is glorified and he is to be honored, and Paul is joyful about that. And in relationship to what we're looking at today in Philippians 2, 1 through 13, we see that there might be a little contention going on in the church at Philippi, and that's part of what Paul is trying to address, whether it was because there were wealthy folks in the church and it was making issues with others who were not as wealthy, or they were Roman citizens, so they were kind of uppity about being uh, citizens of Rome, and that was creating contention with their neighbors. We don't really know exactly what it is. Those are just some speculations that scholars offer. But Paul's prerogative, and some of this letter, particularly in this point we're looking at today, is to say there's differences between you, but we're called to be unified in the gospel together. And so this is where we pick up. Again, this is Philippians 2, 1 through 13, which says this. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only in his own interest, to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among you, yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, as our song said this morning, in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
I'm sure you've been inundated, as I have this week, with images and write-ups about Reverend Billy Graham. Yesterday, as I was preparing this message, I uh, was at, in the office and I was watching the motorcade online. Some of you may have seen that. And during the motorcade, and I wasn't just watching the cars, because that would have been a little strange for a couple hours. Not that he doesn't deserve the honor, but uh, they had some folks on there who were commentating uh, along the journey of the motorcade route. They, they had people who had interviewed him. They had other pastors. They had musicians he had worked with over the course of his many years in ministry. And one of the ones that stood out to me was uh, Diane Sawyer. And I don't know if you saw uh, this and saw her, her account of engaging with Billy Graham. But Ms. Sawyer said that when she would uh, interview Billy, uh, he had a, a meekness about him, almost like he was shy. Which really stood out to me because if you watch his messages, you know there's such a bold confidence and authority in God's word. You view him in interviews with Diane Sawyer or Larry King or whoever else he might have been with, and you see a man who's confident in what he believes, trusts the word is true, and is sure about the message he is proclaiming. And yet this woman indicated that in a private moment when she would speak with him, he had humility, maybe even a shyness and a meekness about him. The authority, the confidence that Billy Graham demonstrated in his ministry came from the Holy Spirit. Because he trusted that God's word was true, no matter what the world told him, no matter what other word might inform the community, that his word was true and it's something he could count on. In private moments, he might have shown humility or meekness because his confidence wasn't in him. It was in Christ. And thereby he was humble about who he was. Because along with this demonstration of confidence that we often saw over the years of his ministry, we also saw a man who understood his own depraved condition. We saw a man who understood that he was a sinner. When we looked at his life in the public, we might have been hard-pressed to point out in what way. But this was a man who understood that he needed Christ just as much as everybody else does. That sense, that heart of humility, that awareness of our need for Jesus Christ is what Paul is addressing this morning when we talk about the unity of the body. Because you see, what binds us together isn't our personalities, isn't our favor, isn't our interest sets, it's not the way we dress. Speaking of, I had like three people this morning say, you're preaching this morning, aren't you? And I didn't even talk to them yet by the time they said, I don't know what that was about. It's not the way we dress. It's not any of that. What binds us together is our awareness that without Jesus Christ, we are destined for separation from God for eternity. But with Jesus Christ, we are ushered into his glory, even now at this moment, as he surrounds us with his spirit. That is what binds us together. Billy understood that, and our passage today speaks to that. Again, looking at verses 1 and 2, it says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. The Spirit is the origin of what Paul is speaking to here that binds us in love and in encouragement. It commands and leads us in loving Christ and knowing Him. And by knowing Him, we know ourselves. Because we're able to identify our own shortcomings, our own inabilities. We've become convicted of our sin. And we find rest. And we find release. And we find freedom in the Gospel. 
And knowing this freedom together, we know that as we come together, whatever might divide us is not worth our time, not worth our attention, not worth our focus, because our ultimate aim in this life is to know God and to make Him known. If we seek Christ, the idealism of verse 1 and 2 about the unity that we can have can be known even in this this house. Can be known even in your homes. Can be known in our community. In our world. You and I may be different in many ways. But when we have the Spirit in us, it is what guides us, convicts us, informs us. And as we're informed by the Holy Spirit and we call upon Christ to move in our lives and to do His good work, we become of one mind. We think the same about life. We think the same about how to live it. We think the same about how to encourage, how to love. But that decision is contingent upon our acceptance of Christ as Savior and our desire to be unified. Verse 3 and 4 give us some further information about what it might look like if we don't pursue that end. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only look to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And watching this video montage yesterday during the motorcade, there was a video of uh, President Clinton. And in his section, he discussed how Billy Graham had ministered to his pastor, who was dying. Now, Billy Graham at the time, Clinton indicated, was busy with whatever work he was doing, but he came to Billy Graham, President Clinton, and said, my pastor's dying, and I'd like you to come to be with him to minister to him. And so Billy did that. Manny didn't know in a time where he was otherwise occupied. While he had other things going on, other interests, other attentions, other focuses, what we can see demonstrated in the man's life and his action, his speech, and so on, is a desire to do what verses 1 and 2 tell us, which is to be one in mind, to be going after Christ, to be obedient to His Spirit, to be faithful in the word that he would dispense to our hearts. And so whatever else Billy Graham was doing at that particular moment, he understood that he needed to be a minister to this man. He needed to encourage this person. He needed to demonstrate love. Servanthood will necessarily end in humility. You see, this passage 3 and 4, it tells us to go and to serve one another. If you're in this house today and you're listening to this word and you think to yourself, I don't know if I would take the time out to do this or that. If I was called upon because I'm busy with this, I've got to do these things, I've got a schedule to keep, I've got people to engage with, I've got da 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 Or if you're sitting in this house today and you're looking around the neighbors who are around you and you're like, well, that person looks kind of funny. Or that person smelled when they came in. Or I saw that person buying beer at the grocery store last night. And you're thinking, that's not the kind of person maybe I can minister to. The kind of servant's heart that these passages are discussing, we see demonstrated in Billy's life and Paul's life and other lives that you may see around you, is an understanding that the ultimate aim here is about the dispensing of the gospel. 
can't even get my word out. It's about sending, I can't dispense the gospel. It's about sending out the gospel. That's the key end. And so whatever differences we may have with one another, even in this very building, I'm speaking to Starnes Cove today, whatever differences we have, whatever disagreements we have, whatever different worldviews we have apart from the gospel, our calling is not to make a determination about whether or not we're going to show favor to one another based on our favor. It's based on Jesus Christ. And when we encourage, when we minister, when we love, when we sacrifice for the ends of the gospel, then the gospel is sent out to the world. And people come to know Christ because of our sacrifice. People come to know Christ because we're willing to say, I'm not going to let my differences stop me from engaging with my neighbor. I'm not going to let the differences between me and the people in my workplace stop me from dispensing the gospel. I'm not going to let the differences between me and the people around me in my community stop me from loving them for the sake of Christ. I'm going to make a sacrifice. I'm going to get uncomfortable. I'm going to do the hard thing. And when I do that, when I'm faithful, then we see the manifestation of verses 1 and 2 again saying this, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. We live in a dark age that needs this clarity brought to it. Needs this unity demonstrated by the church. Needs this love shown around them. And when we are obedient and faithful, when we seek to fulfill that calling, then people come to Christ in salvation. And we find unity in our community. Servanthood requires us to examine our own hearts. You see, pride is kind of on a a scale of pride, arrogance, and insecurity. Because for some in our world, we are proud. We can't find unity with folks around us because we don't want to. We don't want to make the sacrifice to engage with the strange in our neighborhoods. We don't want to spend the time to work through the little nuances of other people's personalities that we don't like for the sake of the gospel. We're proud. And so we'll stay with who we're with, people like us, and then on the other end of that is insecurity. Because you see, when we're insecure and we think that we're not good enough, not capable enough, not able, that sounds a little contradictory to pride, but in fact it is proud. Because we're focusing on ourselves, our own inability, our looks, or we don't have the right words. Or we can't be unified because we can't be the one who comes to say sorry for what we've done wrong. And right in the middle between pride and insecurity is Jesus Christ. And in His guiding hand through His Holy Spirit, we find the capacity to understand that we need to be humble, and we find the capacity to understand that we are nothing without Christ anyway. And when we understand who we really are through the lens of our own sin and our inability, we find Jesus there telling us that He loves us, loves us with an an immeasurable love. The only measurement we have is a cross. A man died for our sins. And that is a demonstration of his love. And when we find Jesus here in the middle, on the other side we find we're not good enough anyway. Without him, without his capacity, ability, power, and love, we're nothing. But with Jesus, when we seek to follow him faithfully, we see an example 
in verses 5 through 11, which say this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So how do we do these things in practice? How do we take verses 1 and 2 and find that kind of unity and like-mindedness? I can stand up here and fuss all day and holler and all that, but when we leave this place, we've got to make a convicted decision that we're going to be obedient and faithful to the Lord in our homes and our personal conversations in this week ahead of us. I had a conversation with a young man this week who told me he was discouraged when he looks at the church, not necessarily our church, but looks at the church and sees how we sometimes draw draw dividing lines between us and them. We might not leave them out of the door, but we don't make an effort to open it for them. We have to be preoccupied when we come into this place to worship with the first and second greatest commandments, to love God and then to love each other through that love for God. And that's got to be a conscious, intentional decision we make if we genuinely want to be unified as Paul is speaking to in verses 1-2. We've got to make a choice, a decision, to give an effort behind a desire to demonstrate unity for the sake of the gospel. For some of us, that means that we need to engage with the strange, the folks around us who are a little bit different than we are. We need to stop leaving them on the periphery. I'm not talking about anybody in here, Harold. No, I'm just kidding. We need to stop leaving people on the periphery. We need to stop ignoring the people who walk into our Sunday school class that we don't know. And think, well, the pastor will get them. We've got to stop not engaging on Wednesday night when we're downstairs for dinner. We need to look at those empty tables or the person who's sitting alone or the family who just walked in and make an intentional effort to speak the gospel to them in love. This is the unity that binds us for the sake of the gospel being dispensed to the world. That is our cause. That is our calling. To know God and to make Him known. For some of us, it means the next time we have a homecoming dinner, we need to slow down and stop taking all the drumsticks. And we need to sacrifice. I like drumsticks. And if you're out there and you take all of them and I get down there, I know it's you. Okay? We need to sacrifice. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, theologian, suggests these things when we think in our mind, how can I be unified with the body of Christ as spoken in verses 1 through 4 and demonstrated by Christ in 5 through 11? He says this, refuse to speak ill of a brother or sister in Christ. The next time you're in a conversation, by the way, I want you guys to know I'm sweating right now. Some of y'all will tell me about that for some reason at the back door, but I'm aware of it, just so everybody knows, okay? Um, I don't know why it's hot in here. Verses 5 through 11 focus on Christ's example. And so Bonhoeffer says this, we can refuse to speak ill of a brother or sister. The next time you're in a conversation, especially in this house, and somebody's talking about somebody else, Refuse to be a part of that. Because that is not done for the sake of unity in the gospel. And when we do it, we don't dispense truth to the world and people are not saved. That's the consequence. Listen clearly. The cost of us not demonstrating Christ in unity is people do not come to know Jesus Christ as Savior. That's the cost. 
Understand your own depravity. Understand that you and I are nothing without Jesus. We are not saved by us plus Jesus. We are explicitly, strictly, only saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. And when we understand that, then we can be a little more humble. And we can understand the need our neighbor has for our love and encouragement. Listen intently. This one's a little hard for me. I talk a lot. She look and speak to that, and some of you as well. When we're in conversations with people, be humble enough to pay attention, to listen to their needs. And through listening, you'll find the ways by which you can minister to them, be unified with them, and encourage them for the sake of Christ. Refuse to consider what you're doing so valuable that it can't be interrupted for the sake of telling people about Jesus. Because our goal here is to know God and to make Him known. And whatever end God uses to accomplish that, we have to be willing to sacrifice our work time in the office, our time watching the football game, our time reading, if that's what you do. We've got to be willing to sacrifice for the sake of God's kingdom. And declare God's word to other believers. When your brother is in a place where he's struggling, your sister needs to know some clarity in the word, and maybe they need to be convicted by God's word, be willing to share what is true. Again, getting back to verses 5 through 11, we see this modeled in Jesus' life. Now, I love documentaries. And this week, this past week, Sheila and I were watching a documentary on um, the death of Princess Diana. It's like 20 years ago. And in the documentary, they talked about how the queen was being ridiculed by the public because she wasn't making a statement about Diana's death. And for the queen, her, her mindset was twofold. One, Princess Diana at that time was no longer a part of the royal family, so she didn't feel like it was appropriate protocol to say anything about it. But the other is she was investing her time and attention in her grandchildren. She felt like it was her primary job as a grandmother to encourage, to love, and to take care of these boys who had lost their mother. And so there was public outcry, the news was in the middle of it, the prime minister trying to get her to do something, the royal family to say something. And so they showed a a clip towards the end of that week where she came out of, some of you may remember this, came out of Buckingham Palace and met people, just out, just met the crowds out there in the front of the palace. Shook hands, received flowers, consoled. This woman didn't have to do that. It wasn't required of her. She's the queen. Nobody tells her what to do. Some say that she could have lost public support, but the wealth that that family has and land in that nation would not, stopped, would not have stopped her from maintaining control. But she heard the outcry from the public, and she made a decision to humble herself and come to be with them because their need was great. And she had the ability to meet that need in comfort. And in due time, everything was well again because she made a statement. She engaged with the community. She stepped out of her palace, came down to where they were, met them at their level, and encouraged them. In verses 5 through 11, we see a demonstration of that truth, but on a much larger scale. In verse 5, it says again, 
have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus 6, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. This word grasped here, this word grasped in Greek, it means something like taking what is rightfully yours by the hand. Jesus Christ was rightfully on the throne, rightfully in authority, rightfully he didn't have to do anything for us, but he loved us enough to die on a cross and raise from a grave because he saw our need was great and he met it. He stepped out of heaven and he met us where we were, right here in the world, right here in this messy, dirty, hard place because he loves us. Because he loves us. And he was humble enough to make the sacrifice that was necessary for the sake of unity with us, with Christ, with God, for the sake of the dispensing of the gospel, stepped out of heaven for us. And it said, it's again that he had this nature of God, but he takes on the nature of man. This word nature here means something like the total and complete and full capacity of. And so he had the nature of God, meaning he was fully, completely, and totally God. And he stepped out of heaven and took on the nature of man when he didn't have to. Could have let us die, separated forever, and that would have been just and right. And yet he loved us enough to humble himself to come. Tony Mirda, pastor, says, what advantage that he had wasn't forgetting, but rather forgiving. Because you see, while Jesus had this full authority, power, and capacity, He didn't use it for Himself. He didn't use it to get more. When Satan tempted Him in the wilderness, He didn't take full advantage of what was before Him because He knew that His ability, power, capacity was for us. God was sending Him for us, to die for us, to raise for us. And in his model and demonstration of sacrifice and humility, we see something that we should acknowledge, we should take hold of, we should follow. And that's knowing this, what we have in us, if you're a Christian today, is a great treasure that the world needs desperately. And God is calling us to be willing to step out of our places of stature in this world and step down to where everyone else is and say, hey, you need Christ and he loves you. And I'm willing to sacrifice for that cause. Again, verse 1 and 2 tell us something about a beautiful unity that can be known. Verses 3 and 4 tell us a little bit more about what reality looks like sometimes when we're not unified. But in Jesus' example in verses 5 through 11, we see uh, a hero, if you will. A model of what we can look like in our willingness to sacrifice. Our willingness to demonstrate unity for the sake of God's kingdom. Because the ultimate end, again is salvation. The ultimate end in our lives, Christians in this room, it's not to accumulate wealth and retire. It's not to get a nice vehicle. It's not to go on vacations. I'm about to go on vacation, so that's conviction for me. Not about going on vacation. Not about security. Not about establishing a family. Not, not about keeping your child safe. These are not the callings of our, our responsibility through the gospel. Our responsibility is to demonstrate the good word of God everywhere we go to everyone we see. And if there's a cost to that in life, a cost to that in limb, a cost to that in finances, then that's the cost we pay because our Savior paid a cost even higher than that in His total death on a cross and raising from the grave even though He never had to do it for us. What a beautiful testimony, a beautiful truth, and a beautiful model for us. 5 through 11 tell us about that truth. We find unity with the same Spirit when we are willing to give anything for the sake of the Gospel. 
The only thing Christ wasn't worthy of was a cross, and that's the thing he took on. Come to the cross humbly. We scream for mercy. God, release us of our ailments. God, help us in our financial struggles. God, be with us in this dark hour. And he says, yes, I'm here. I've come down for you. I, as I stand in front of you this morning, I am in need of that. I am depraved. I am a wretch without the gospel. And I need salvation today just as much as I needed it at nine years old when I accepted Christ. And knowing what Christ has done on this side of salvation, we ought to humbly serve as he served. We ought to be willing to sacrifice whatever the cost. Because we see in verses 9 through 11 that the ultimate end of that again is salvation. And salvation is brought by the glorification of the Father. Because when Christ stepped out of heaven... God was brought glory. When Christ died on that cross, God was brought glory. When Christ sacrificed his life, God was brought glory. When Christ rose out of that grave, God was brought glory. When Charlie Sams told me about Jesus Christ at nine, God was brought glory. When your mother or father revealed the gospel to you, God was brought glory. When you engage with that person in the community that's downtrodden, rejected, and you encourage them for the sake of the kingdom, God was brought glory. When you talk to those people in your school who are left out, God has brought glory. God has brought glory. And what happens with that glory? 11, 12, and 13 say this. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. There's a house on the road that I pass on the way home or the way here, and it's being, it's being constructed. And for like weeks and weeks, they were building the foundation of the house. Now, you may not know this, but I don't know anything about house building, so I don't know what it, all that involves. But anyway, they're working on this house, uh, foundation for this house. They've been working on it for weeks, working on it for months. It seems like it's taken a long time. So they get this thing done, and then like in days, they've got walls up. Just like that. Walls are up. Just like that. Foundation, weeks, months, days, walls are up. The foundation of our unity, the foundation of our commitment, the foundation of being willing to sacrifice, the foundation of our humility is Jesus Christ and our salvation through Him. But as Paul tells us in this passage, we must work out our own salvation. Now, as you hear that word, don't hear this. We're not saying work out your eternal security through Christ. Because once you accept Jesus Christ at that very moment, you are secure. You are sealed, the scripture says, and there is no going back on that. You are forever secure in Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us, when you've accepted him as Savior. What Paul is saying is that as you manifest that, as you begin to build walls around you in this house, in this analogy... As you begin to grow in your faith and learn what it means to be a Christian and follow Him in discipleship, you've got to work that out. You've got to work it out with Christ. You've got to work it out with your brothers and sisters in the faith. You've got to work it out with your church. 
The gospel is what changes us. And verse 12 reminds us that you are doing well if you know Christ. So excellent work if you're being faithful in your salvation, trusting Him for your eternity. But do not stop there. Do not stop there. Construct walls. Build the roof. Paint the walls. Put pictures on the wall. Put a bedroom in there. Grow in your faith. Become humble. Become faithful. Become obedient. Become committed. We are not called to stop at conversion. We are called to grow well beyond that for the duration of our lives until the time where we come into Christ's presence as Mr. Graham has done and we are glorified eternally. And we do that through the power of Jesus Christ in us. Eugene Peterson, pastor, says the sanctification or the growth of our faith is a long obedience in the same direction. And that means that we follow faithfully. In this fast-paced world, that's tough to do. We want our food quick, our shows quick, our cars quick, our clothes quick. And working in, in our salvation or working out our salvation is a slow process because let's go, reading the Bible is kind of slow. Praying, kind of slow. Listening to me talk, kind of slow. Amen? Thank you. And so... The work that's required to work out our salvation, it is work. It is work to become who Christ wants us to be. We don't do it alone because Christ is with us. God is with us. But this is the point I want to make today. If I haven't made any other point, this is the point I want to make today. That when we are willing to sacrifice ourselves for the sake of the gospel, it is dispensed to the world and people come to know Christ in salvation because of our willingness. Our world is in need desperately of the gospel. There are people in this house today who desperately need to know Christ as Savior. And when we're willing to sacrifice our time, our desires, and all the things we do with ourselves that don't bring Him glory, people know Christ from that. People come to salvation when we stop fussing, we stop complaining, we stop arguing, we stop getting caught up in all the nonsense that we focus on, and we start realizing that we are called to know God and to make Him known. And when we look at the whole of our lives, our waking, sleeping, eating lives, what you did this morning when you got up, the conversation you had with your spouse, the things you'll do with your afternoon, tomorrow as you go to work, and you engage with people around you. Those hours, these hours, the remaining living days of your life are for this purpose, to know God and to make Him known. And that's accomplished when we're unified in the Spirit. We follow that Spirit faithfully. And we dispense the Gospel by our model, as Christ did, and by working out our salvation and knowing that God is with us. I'm not fussing today to say, work harder in your faith. Get more committed. You're not alone. The full power of Christ is behind you in this end of unity. His desire and His goal is for you to come to know Him better so that others can know Him and that collectively upon the return of Christ we can be in heaven forever with Him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we consider what it means to be unified that You just move on us, God. Let this not be for nothing. Your Word doesn't go out void and I trust that if Folks in this room, if myself included, we needed to hear a good word about just reaching across to our neighbor and encouraging them and help us to do that. God, if we need to come to the altar and 
confess our sin and repent and turn from it. Help us to do that. If we need to just understand what it means to see Jesus as an example of sacrifice, help us to do that. If today we're working really, really hard in our faith, God, but we're not trusting you and your power to work out our salvation, then help us to trust that. God, I pray that whatever decision must be made, whether it's in salvation or recommitment or repentance or whatever you're doing in our hearts today, let us not leave this building until a decision is made, a commitment is followed through. We thank you for your sacrifice and your love for us in the cross. Amen. I'm going to be down front here as we sing this closing hymn. And I encourage you again, whatever thoughts you've had about our text today and what God is revealing to you, work through this with him. Maybe in repentance, maybe in salvation. The altar's open, I'm here to pray, but God is doing business and work in the pews just as much as he'll do anywhere else. And so, no, I'm here, but... I encourage you not to leave today without making some decision about your commitment to read the text or faithfulness in following him to dispense the gospel in your workplace or whatever it is that he's doing in you. Don't let this be another Sunday where you just go have lunch and we forget about what we've learned. I have many Sundays like that myself, unfortunately. Commit to do something for the sake of the gospel today. Billy. Really?